In February 1858, the Latter-day Saints and the U.S. Army were in an armed standoff on the frozen plains of Wyoming. The Army, under the command of Colonel Albert Sidney Johnston, was on half rations and suffering from a lack of salt. The Latter-day Saints seemed to have the upper hand for the time being, though they faced growing threats from all sides. In the middle of this stalemate, a strange letter arrived in Salt Lake City for Brigham Young. It had come express from the town of Nephi, about 80 miles to the south. The note, scrawled in a hurry, contained this cryptic message. My dear sir, I trust you will recognize my handwriting. That I have made the journey in six weeks from New York may persuade you that I am on no fool's errand. I send this to you by express and urge you to postpone any military movement of importance until we meet and have a serious interview. If you cannot see the expediency of doing so on other grounds, I entreat it as a favor in requital of the services which I rendered your people in their less prosperous days. I remain their friend to serve them faithfully, Dr. Osborne. Two days later, pale and shaking with illness, the mysterious Dr. Osborne arrived in the city. It was none other than their friend, Colonel Thomas Kane, who could now dispense with his pseudonym. He had indeed made the trip in six weeks, traveling night and day to reach Salt Lake City before the Latter-day Saints and the U.S. Army came to battle. On today's episode, we remember Thomas Kane's arrival in Salt Lake City and his mission to end the Utah War. I'm Nate Olson, and this is Adventures in Mormon History. Thomas Kane arrived in Salt Lake City seemingly out of the blue. His message had promised to unfold the true feelings of the president towards Brigham Young and the good citizens of Utah. And if nothing else, Kane had the goodwill and respect of the Latter-day Saints, many of whom remembered how he had traveled to witness their sufferings in winter quarters on the plains of Iowa almost a decade earlier. Now that he had arrived in Salt Lake City, Brigham Young gathered the church leaders available to the Lion House to hear his unexpected message. Wilford Woodruff recorded the following entry in his journal. At 8 o'clock, the messenger was introduced to us by Joseph A. Young as Dr. Osborne, which was Colonel T.L. Kane. He was very pale and worn down, having traveled night and day. Seated in an easy chair, Colonel Kane, with great difficulty speaking, declared, I am come as an ambassador from the chief executive of our nation, and I am fully prepared and duly authorized to lay before you most fully the feelings and views of the citizens of our common country relating to the army of the United States now upon your borders. I wish to enlist your sympathies in behalf of the poor soldiers who are suffering in the cold and snows of the mountains, and I request you to render them aid and comfort and to assist them to come here and bid them a hearty welcome into your hospitable valley. Church leaders were dumbstruck on hearing this message. For the past months, all their energy had gone towards stopping the army's advance by fortifying Echo Canyon capturing unwary soldiers and teamsters, burning their supplies, and trying their best to stampede their animals. And now, Colonel Kane, with no advance notice, had crossed the continent in the dead of winter, arriving, as it were, on death's door, to urge them instead to welcome the army into the valley. And the Latter-day Saints had, in fact, already tried to de-escalate the conflict with reconciliatory overtures. After the army had lost half of its supplies to Mormon raids, 
Brigham Young had sent several hundred pounds of salt to their camp at Fort Bridger. Dragging such a heavy load in the middle of winter was no small task, and one of the saints delivering the salt received severe cold weather injuries on his feet. But this overture had been rebuffed. Albert Sidney Johnston, who was afraid the salt might be poisoned, warned the messengers from the valley that if they dared return to his camp, they would be treated as intruders. That is, they would be shot. But now their old friend, Thomas Kane was urging them to try again, extending the hand of friendship. Some of the saints balked at this suggestion. George A. Smith wrote to a friend how he reacted when he heard the message. It turns out, Colonel Kane's message is an unofficial one. He designs our good and is a warm friend, but he wants us to spare the lives of the poor soldiers camping about Fort Bridger. Mr. Buchanan would like us to feed them and not destroy them until he can get sufficient reinforcements for them to destroy us. That is as near as I can learn the designs of the President of the United States. Bah! Over the next few days, Kane seemed to make little progress convincing the Saints that reconciliatory measures could de-escalate the conflict. On the 4th of March, 1858, he accompanied Brigham Young to the tabernacle, where he addressed the congregation. Brigham Young downplayed the significance of Kane's expedition and went out of his way to discourage hope that Kane would succeed in ending the conflict. He declared, Dr. Osborne has pleaded with me on behalf of our common country for me not to chaw up the army which is out there. He wishes them to have the privilege of living. They are in our hands, and the government knows it. What we shall do is yet to be told. Time will tell. But despite his lack of progress, Kane remained optimistic that somehow he could capitalize on his personal credibility and the sheer force of his will. The fact that he was near death by the time he arrived in the city gave a romantic, theatrical flair to the whole endeavor. In a letter to his brother Pat, he wrote, I believe I displayed some talent in exhibiting to the Mormons what was very clear in my own mind, that their interests and those of their countrymen were inseparable. But my main strength lay in my character, in their knowledge of it, and the belief that I had not risked my life and dragged myself, half dying in among them, to change it and betray them to their ruin. That same day, Kane began writing a letter to the White House. Already, he had struck on a narrative that he believed he could sell to Buchanan and the nation at large. He wrote that the church in Utah was split into two factions, a faction of hawks, led by unnamed individuals, who were desperate to ride out and attack Johnston's army. They were opposed by the Peace Party, led by Brigham Young, which had its hands full restraining their more militant brothers. He wrote, It is scarcely the language of hyperbole to say that since the cold weather set in, there has not been an hour in which our army has not been in danger, though they have lived and slept in peace through the whole winter, guarded by Brigham Young. Such is the violence of feelings among those opposed to the administration that they volunteer me evidence against themselves upon a trial for high treason, rather than miss an opportunity to vent their feelings of dissatisfaction at the restraint imposed on them by Brigham Young. His embassy to the Latter-day Saints, however, failed to yield much progress towards de-escalation. Despite his best efforts, 
Thomas Kane had not managed to convince anyone that it was in their best interest to make peace with the army. The evening before he left to meet Johnston's army, he and Brigham Young argued about whether the church should offer another olive branch. It seems that Kane explained to Brigham Young that Albert Sidney Johnston was, after all, a gentleman who would understand a goodwill gesture as a waiver of the church's previous defiance. But this argument backfired. Kane later wrote, Brigham Young broke out into a tirade of the most unquestionable sincerity. He recounted how he had sent hundreds of pounds of salt to the army in its hour of need. He then demanded, wasn't that to be taken as a waiver of my defiant position? Hadn't I a right to think it would lead to the interchange of good offices and feelings? And how was it received? How was the man, the man with bad frostbite just the same, the man who had lugged the salt all the way through the snow, how were they received? Was it a gentleman who told them to turn about and go back, that if they showed their faces again they would be shot? A gentleman? Don't tell me that. And so it was that Kane set out in the morning for Fort Bridger, having made no progress in convincing the saints to de-escalate the conflict or offer any conciliatory gesture to the army. How he would convince the army to do so was anyone's guess. Yet, unbeknownst to Kane, events were unfolding in the city that would dramatically alter the church's position. While Brigham Young and Kane were talking the night before, news from the north began sending shockwaves through Salt Lake City. Days earlier, on the morning of the 25th of February, without any warning, a band of roughly 250 Bannock and Northern Shoshone warriors attacked the church's outpost at Fort Limhigh in present-day Salmon, Idaho. The settlement had been vulnerable for some time, and historian Bill McKinnon explains that it sat at the crossroads of a disputed border of several warring tribes. In the initial assault, the attackers killed two Latter-day Saints and wounded five others before the survivors could retreat to the safety of their stockade. The tribes, additionally, managed to raid the settlement's herd of 200 head of cattle and about 30 horses. Brigham Young immediately decided to close down Fort Limhigh and dispatched an escort from the standing army to rescue the settlers and missionaries then besieged in the stockade. The raid on Fort Limhigh came as a strategic shock to the Saints, who had been exploring possible escape routes from the Salt Lake Valley. In these plans to move north, possibly to Montana, Oregon, British Columbia, or even Alaska, Fort Limhigh would be a critical resupply point, what winter quarters had been to their trek from Nauvoo to the Salt Lake Valley. But with Fort Limhigh now under siege, and the settlers facing a coalition of hostile tribes, the prospect of fleeing to the north was now barred to them. And while Brigham Young the day before had rehashed with Colonel Kane how Colonel Albert Sidney Johnston had scoffed at his earlier overtures of peace and threatened to shoot any such future messengers, news of the attack on Fort Limhigh seemed to have convinced Brigham Young to again offer an olive branch to the army. He quickly dispatched his son to ride after Thomas Kane with an urgent message. When he caught up with Kane, Joseph Young delivered his father's message. In a complete reversal from their heated discussion the night before, Brigham Young now offered large quantities of food and supplies to Johnston's army. Against all odds, Thomas Kane had apparently succeeded 
in convincing the Latter-day Saints to try extending an olive branch one more time to their enemies. Armed with this message of hope and goodwill, Kane rode off towards the troops camped at Fort Bridger. On our next episode, we'll recount the tumultuous mission of Thomas Kane to Colonel Albert Sidney Johnston. I'm Nate Olson, and this is Adventures in Mormon History. <laughs>